It is good to be back with you all this morning. Ephesians chapter 1, and we'll be looking at verses 5 and 6. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. According to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Please bow with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for allowing us to open up your word today. And we ask for the Spirit's help that you would lead and guide me as I preach your word and that you would open up the, the hearts and minds of all of your people to receive your word and, and that if any don't know you, that you would change their hearts, that they would receive your word for the very first time. Give us wisdom, knowledge, understanding, and press your word upon our hearts as we consider this, this glorious text. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we are finishing up a text that we started two weeks ago. And as I said last time, the point of the first sermon was to introduce to us the the glorious doctrine of adoption. And the reason we are spending time on this is because Paul tells us several things about adoption in order to move our hearts to praise. He tells us God's motive for adopting us. He tells us how it is a sovereign choice of God and how it is only possible through Christ. And he he tells us the ultimate goal of adoption. But, But as I argued, unless we understand what adoption is and the implications of it, our hearts will not be moved to praise. And I tried to prove this point by way of analogy, showing that if you try to move a, a five-year-old's heart to, to thanks, thankfulness by, by telling the child why you adopted it, that the child's heart would not be moved to praise because he doesn't understand the implications of adoption. But as that child grows and has children of its own and, and understands what you truly did for that child, all of the, the implications of adoption, then you can move that child's heart to thankfulness by, by telling the child why you sacrificed, why you did what you did. And so last time we defined adoption using Grudem's definition, that adoption is an act of God whereby he makes us members of his family. And as we also said, as many theologians have said, justification is is wonderful. It's great. But adoption even takes us beyond justification because God could have justified us and left us there. He could have declared us righteous and left us at a distance to himself. 
But it's through adoption that He brings us close. He brings us into His family. As one theologian said, a judge may declare a man righteous, but it takes a father to adopt. There's a distinction there. And there are many implications of adoption. There are, there are many benefits of adoption. And, and in the last sermon, we began to look at these first by considering the fact that we have a new relationship with God. Paul tells us that by nature we are children of wrath. We are sons of disobedience. This is how we are born. We are not born with clean slates. We are not born basically good people. We are sons of the devil by birth. Which means we are enemies of God. But after God justifies us, after He declares us righteous because of what His Son did, He adopts us into His family as sons and daughters and declares us to be His children and He our Father. And as we said, this is not some formal, artificial thing. This is real. He is our Father in a very real, intimate, familiar way to the point where we call Him Abba, Father, as Christ did. And so here's where we left it last time. So today we will take this farther. What does this new relationship with God mean? What are some of the the implications of being adopted as children of God? We could spend many sermons talking about this, but we will conclude it today with with just some of the the, the main things I want to emphasize. And one is that as children of God, we are disciplined by God. And if if there's a little child in here, they would say, well, that doesn't comfort me to be disciplined. But I think that as adults, we understand the comfort that there is in discipline. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews tells us. And you have forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be wary when reproved by Him, for the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. He disciplines the one He loves. And we are told that this discipline is is evidence that we are legitimate children of God. That that if God does not discipline us, we are illegitimate. We don't truly belong to Him. If If He just allows us to go wayward and never corrects us, never disciplines us, put us back on the straight and narrow path, we are illegitimate children. We were vain professors of Christ, but we did not truly belong to Him. And the writer of Hebrew tells us we had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but He disciplines us for our good that we may share in His holiness. Think of the comfort of knowing that a child is secure 
Because he has parents who love him enough not only to properly instruct him, but to discipline him when he goes astray. For those of you with adult children, does it comfort you to to know, to see your children disciplining your grandchildren in a loving way? You think this is a wonderful thing because they're not just going to let them go astray, let them become unruly. They, They discipline them. And for so many of us, we can think about the discipline we received in our lives. One of the worst punishments I ever received that I still remember to this day, I was lighting toilet paper on fire in the bathroom. Just to see how fast it would burn. That tells you a little bit about me. But I can remember that spanking. And will never forget it. But I think to myself, how bad could that have become if I would have continued doing those sort of things? I can think of the restrictiveness of my parents disciplining me and and not allowing me to do things that that my friends did and now seeing many of those friends in prison for life or dead. And so we think of the, the comforting hand. Discipline. Your your rod and your staff they they comfort me. Dear friends, multiply that comfort by infinity. And that is the the level of comfort and security we have in Christ. Because God is a loving Father. He does not just allow us to go astray. I can remember as a young Christian thinking to myself, Lord, why don't you just let me sin with a clear conscience? I I, want to have fun with my friends. I want to do what they are doing, but I I can't. My, My conscience forbids me. And when I do it, I feel bad. Why won't you just stop that? The author of Hebrews says, do not despise the chastening of the Lord. There is great comfort in the fact that God will not let you ultimately go astray if you truly belong to him. God is a good father who who does not let you just walk away from him. Yes, you may go astray for a while, but if you truly belong to him, he will chastise you, he will discipline you to, to get you on the right path. As believers, we are not just distant creatures of a mysterious God. No, we are children of a loving Father who upholds his children and disciplines them in a loving way when they go astray. Also, adoption gives us freedom and confidence in our prayers. Our Lord said in in Matthew 6, 9, In this manner, therefore, pray, Our Father in heaven. Jesus is, is commanding His disciples to pray to the God as their Father. And who does this? Who who addresses God as Father? But this is what Jesus commands us to do. 
The Heidelberg Catechism asks the question, why did Jesus command us to address God as Father? This is the answer it gives, to awaken in us at the very beginning of our prayer that childlike reverence for and trust in God, which are to be the ground of our prayer, namely that God has become our Father through Christ and will much less deny us what we ask for of Him in faith than our parents refuse us earthly things. At the very beginning of our prayers, we address God as our Father. Why? To put us in the proper frame of mind of who God is to us. Who are we addressing? Not just a distant king, but an actual Father. John Frame puts it this way, the Jews of the Old Covenant also prayed to God, but they feared coming into the most intimate sphere of God's presence. And indeed, they were barred from it by the temple curtains and many regulations. But when Christ died, the veil of the temple was torn in two. Now there is not barrier between ourselves and the greatest intimacy with God that a human being can enjoy. Now we enter boldly into the most holy place, praising our Father and asking Him for what we need. We can count on His compassion and care, just as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear Him. We are commanded to come before God as a, as a, as a king, and I love the hymn, Thou art, thou art coming to a king. Large petitions with thee bring for his grace and power are such that none could ever ask too much. We're coming to an omnipotent, sovereign king, but not just a king, but a father, a loving father who understands what we need before we even ask. A, f- a father who, who understands our weaknesses and is compassionate towards us. We pray to a Father who is good and and gives good things to His children who ask Him. A Father who desires us to to come before Him with all of our needs and, and make them known. Matthew Henry said, we have access with boldness to Him as to a Father. When we come repenting of our sins, we must eye God as a Father, as the prodigal did. When we come begging for grace and peace, and the inheritance and blessing of sons, it is an encouragement that we come to God, not as unreconciled, avenging judge, but as a loving, gracious, reconciled Father in Christ. Dear friends, do you see how justification, but not just justification, but adoption affects our relationship with God in terms of our prayer? So, so justification makes us righteous. We can, we can stand before God righteous. Otherwise, we could not stand before Him. But adoption calls us into, into the most intimate room, in a manner of speaking. It brings us into the Father. And we can ask Him for things. Speaking not to a distant king, but to a gracious and loving Father. And we can pray like Christ, Abba, Father, this word that that a child would would use at home to to address his own father. One pastor once said, only the child of a king, 
Only the child of a king wakes up his father at three in the morning. Brethren, think about this. God says, here's my son, and I'm going to make you a co-heir with him, a co-ruler with him. And this inheritance we receive by God is, is far greater than any earthly inheritance we could receive. Dear friends, if you found out tomorrow that you were the child of a king of some other nation that died and he was a trillionaire and had a massive kingdom and, and all of this has become yours, that would not be greater than the inheritance we receive as adopted sons of God. You, you, you can inherit all of those things and, and perhaps you enjoy it for, for 30, 40 years. You have all of eternity. The inheritance we receive from God is eternal. Perhaps you inherit a million dollars tomorrow and then you, you die and go to hell the next day. What does that profit you? What does it profit to gain the whole world and lose your soul? This inheritance we receive is magnificent. And it's guaranteed to us. It's, it's promised to us. And we'll see later on in, in this chapter that, that, that the Holy Spirit is actually a guarantee. He, he assures that, that we receive this inheritance. And let us just look at one more implication of this. Adoption gives us a new family. We, we call each other brothers and, and sisters in Christ. Why do we do this? When parents adopt a child, the other children of that adopted child becomes brothers and sisters. When you are adopted into a family with other children, you have siblings. Beakian Jones in a Puritan theology puts it this way, as God's adopted sons and daughters, we have been placed in a great family. And if we rightly understood this, our attitude toward our brothers and sisters in the family of God will be profoundly affected. Dear friends, do we recognize this truth? That, that as a church, we, we are actually a family. We are not just strangers who come to the same building to worship the same God and then depart as strangers. We are an actual family. This is not a, a mere theoretical thing. We are brothers and sisters of the same Father. The same Father has adopted all of us and giving us, given us His name and the same inheritance. We are actual brothers and sisters. And this has many implications. And as we look at a few of these implications, I don't want to state these things in a condemning way. That's not my point right now. But, but I will say, if we do not behave like adopted sons and daughters, we don't really see the benefit of being brothers and sisters. 
But what I really want to do here is just point out that the benefits of this. It's not a meaningless thing that we, that we can actually call one another brothers and sisters. So what are some of the implications? We have brothers and sisters all over the world who love us. Who upon meeting us one time would be willing to die for us. This is no small matter. I can remember hearing stories from Paul Washer being, being in a remote village that, that's hostile. And then the joy of finding a, a, another believer there and this, this believer w- instantly willing to risk his or her life for him. Come in here. I'll take care of you. I'll, I'll feed you. You'll stay here. You'll sleep here. And it's dangerous. But they don't care because this is my brother in Christ. And, and I don't just leave my brother out in the cold, hungry and in danger. I love him and I care for him even though I just met him. But not only do we have siblings all over the world, but dear friends, we have brothers and sisters here locally. Our church is actually filled with brothers and sisters in Christ. We are part of a family that is actually commanded to love one another. To care for one another. To help one another in time of need. To encourage and strengthen one another. To sharpen one another. And to bear one another's burdens. We have many siblings here to rejoice with us. To to weep and to mourn with us. Brothers and sisters, we should be able to depend upon in our times of need. None of us can ever say that we are desolate, that we are friendless, that we don't have siblings. When we consider this, think of the great amount of comfort and security we gain from this relationship. We are a group of people who are called siblings and are commanded to love one another as such. You say, what if I lose my job and I can't take care of my family between jobs? Dear friends, not only does your heavenly Father care for you and provides for the birds and loves you much more than they, but but one of the ways in which He has cared for you is that He has given you an actual family to help you in your time of need. There is security and comfort in this. You become debilitated. Your family is in a crisis. Do you sit there at home and get evicted and starve? No. You have a loving family to care for you. But what if I lose my my birth parents and my siblings? Maybe they die or maybe they reject me because of my faith. In a very real sense, you have gained siblings. 
You, you have gained mothers in the faith. You have gained fathers in the faith. John said, my little children. Paul calls Timothy his son. This is not theoretical. This should be a reality to us. And it is a comfort to us. But what if as I age, I can no longer get around well? And so I can't care for myself anymore. And maybe my children have abandoned me so they won't care for me. Or maybe I don't have children to care for me. What do I do? Do I just go and and rot in a nursing home? God forbid his family act that way. God has given you many children and brothers and sisters in this body of believers that had better care for one another and love for one another and love one another in such a way that we would never neglect and abandon anyone. And what if my husband dies? And I am left seeking to, to care for my children on my own. Dear friends, you have brothers and sisters who are commanded to care for orphans and widows. Because God himself says he is a father to the fatherless and a defender of widows. And in James, he commands us to to visit, to help, to assist orphans and widows in their distress. We have brothers and sisters who had better step up in time of need and take care of one another. Do you see the comfort in this? It's a sad thing. If you're ever, if you're ever a part of like a, um, a city Facebook group, and you, you sometimes have like a single woman with a child there and she, she'll post something about how she needs this or needs that, needs a right here, or, or, or just has no way of getting something she, she desperately needs. And I think to myself, what a, what a helpless situation. What, what comfort is there in, in the body of Christ that even if we don't have physical family to help us, we actually have brothers and sisters who are c- commanded to love us in such a way to help in time of need. We are never desolate. We have comfort. We are secure. This is so important. This is so important that it is actually given as evidence of salvation. Do we recognize that? John 13, 35, By this all will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another. The, the world knows that we are followers of Christ because of the way we love one another as brothers and sisters. What exactly does this mean? After all, isn't love just like a, a warm and cozy feeling in your heart? John answers that for us. By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us. This is how we know love. Christ demonstrated love by laying down his life for our sake. This is love. And we 
also are to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? It doesn't. My little children. Can you hear this elderly Apostle John like a father talking to his little kids who are fighting amongst one another? My little children. Let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed, in truth. Let us not say, I love you, brother, and I love you, sister, and then turn our backs in time of need. That's loving in tongue, not in deed and in truth. Dear friends, God has taken such care to to, to give us brothers and sisters who will, who will care for one another, that he says, those who do not do this don't actually belong to me. Brothers and sisters, we have work to do, don't we? How many of us actually experience the implications of this? And, and I would, I would, from, from my experience so far, I would say we do pretty well here. But this is not the case in most churches. M- many churches are like dysfunctional families. They don't actually cultivate relationships with one another, but, but simply remain strangers. In most churches, the, the most dangerous place to be at the end of the sermon is at the back door because there will be a stampede as soon as it's dismissed. I'll see you all next week. Maybe, maybe not. But that's the extent of the relationship. And instead of caring for one another, what, what do many do? You have a need? Well, let me find a government agency to help you with that. Let, let me find a charity that, that deals with that. Because we never want to get our hands dirty. And we, we never want it to cost us anything to help others. This should be a tight-knit community where we actually behave like like brothers and sisters. We we actually know one another. We we actually spend time with one another. We, We actually know what each other needs because we actually spend time together. We should not be in the same church for, for 20 years and remain strangers. This should simply not be the case. We must be obedient in our duties to one another as brothers and sisters so that we all experience the the benefit of being members of, of a local family filled with brothers and sisters. God has not called us to be lone Christians isolated from all others. But he has called us to community, dear friends. To be greatly involved in one another's lives. Sunday morning is not enough. We need to do better than that. Beaky and Smalley in a Reformed Systematic Theology say that the believer in Christ has a new identity as a child of God. And this is not an individualistic identity to be cultivated in isolation, but an identity rooted in a network of family relations. And if you want to know what this looks like, 
Simply read the book of Acts. It is put on display greatly. We can consider Acts chapter 2. The believers continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Notice the fellowship. They continued steadfastly in it. And all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. And we can move to Acts chapter 4. The multitude of those who believed were were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that, that any of these things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked. For all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and, and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each as anyone had need. This is not communism. That's not what we're seeing here. That the early church did not become communists who did not believe in personal property anymore. That's not what we see. But we see people who had been selfish their entire lives, just just building up their own kingdoms, their entire life, gaining things, their entire lives. And now that they are believers in Christ, They are zealous to provide for the needs of their brothers and sisters so that they say, if there's anything you have need of and I have it, it is yours. If I have something extra that I don't need and someone else is in need, it is yours. Is that our mentality? I would say in most of Christianity, it is simply not. But this, dear friends is what Christianity should look like. This is not radical. This is not radical Christianity. This is biblical Christianity. Brothers and sisters actually loving one another and caring for one another in time of need. Not trying to avoid it. But doing it zealously. Even, even perceiving needs. They're selling things and bringing them to the apostles' feet. I don't know of a need right now, but if anyone has need of this, give it to them. I don't need it. Someone else might. Or I can go and sell this and, and I'll give this money to the apostles and, and when someone has need, give this to them. These people were zealous to meet the needs of one another. That is what biblical Christianity looks like. Dear friends, what a privilege to be involved in such a family where that is the standard. What a privilege. What a privilege to be a part of a a family where we are commanded, actually, to, to love one another in that way. Do do you see the, the sense of security there? Do you see the sense of, of comfort there? It's real. Having actual brothers and sisters in Christ is, is beneficial to us. We are not alone. 
And I would say that in American Christianity, we have largely lost this. And in many other nations, you depend upon your brothers and sisters in Christ. But in America, our our culture has become such that we, we, honestly, we depend on the government more than anything else. If I have a need, I go to the government. This should not be the case. If my brother has a need, I send him to the government. Dear friends, this is not biblical Christianity. Government welfare is not biblical charity. We have not fulfilled our commands to love one another because we unwillingly pay taxes that go to to welfare. That's not how this works. Well, like I said, we could spend several more sermons hashing this out, but, but I want to bring this to a close. And we could summarize what we have covered so far by saying that That adoption changes our lives. We we are moved from being children of wrath to children of God. God becomes our Father. And we have a personal and intimate relationship with Him. We are made joint heirs with Christ, receiving a great inheritance. And as children of God, He provides for our needs. He, He watches over us. He keeps us. And He lovingly disciplines us. He allows us to to approach Him in prayer in an intimate way and encourages us to ask Him for what we need, promising to give good things to His children who ask. And not only that, He brings us into a family, giving us brothers and sisters who, who love one another sacrificially to the point of even being willing to lay down their lives for one another. As Beaky and Smalley notes, adoption changes everything. Do do we see that? That that many of these benefits we, we experience in our life is not actually due to justification, although justification makes it possible. It's actually one step farther. It is due to adoption. God has brought us in to a family. And in light of this, in light of just understanding something of what adoption is and the implications and benefits of it. Let us consider quickly what Paul tells us about adoption in this text. First, he tells us the motive of adoption. He says, in love, he predestined us for adoption as sons. Very simple. God did this in love. His love for us. William Ames notes that, that human adoption was introduced when there, was, when there were no or too few natural sons, but, but divine adoption is not from any want, but from abundant goodness. Consider that. Oftentimes we adopt children because of just, we don't need children, but, but we, what we want to express our love. But sometimes because you don't have children, you you adopt children. It's what Ames is saying. It's not always the case. But but with humans, he's saying that that sometimes it's a lack of what you have that causes a person to do that. That's never the case with God. God doesn't need us. He doesn't need us to be his children. He, He never needed children. But in love. In the overabundance of his love, he has adopted us as sons 
and daughters. Again, 1 John 3, 1. See what manner of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. John tells us this was God's motive. And what manner of love that did God show to us actually making us His children? This is astounding. This is, this is overwhelming love. Amazing love. Divine love. And we're also told by Paul that this was God's choice. He says two things here. One, He predestined us. And he also notes, according to the purpose of His will. God predestined us to adoption according to the purpose of His own will. He decided to do this before the very foundation of the world. Again, speaking it small, they say election and predestination are the planning of adoption. An election God chose whom He would adopt. In predestination, he determined their destiny beforehand to become his sons through Christ's mediation. God, before the foundation of the world, chose to adopt us into his family. And again, I know that that election and and predestination can be hard pills to swallow. But dear friends, simply view this in the context of God's Infinite love. He sovereignly chose not only to justify us, but to bring us close to Him through adoption. And He did this because of His love. Think of the love here. When a family chooses to adopt a child because of love, We don't scold that family and say, how dare you adopt that child and not that other child? Who do you think you are that you would choose that one child instead of choosing ten children? How how dare you make a choice and adopt one child while leaving another child unadopted? That's absurdity. And no one would do that. But, But this is what we do to God when He tells us that He predestined us to adoption. We say, how dare you do that? How dare you leave some people unadopted? Think of this in the earthly realm. We have love and joy in our hearts when we we see the the beauty of, of of a family taking a child that is fatherless and motherless and giving them a family, a name, an inheritance. And we say, praise God for that display of love. How much more should we say, praise God for that display of love in adopting sons and daughters of wrath? When we consider this in the context of God's love, it stops us from saying, how dare God do that? When you say that, you're essentially saying, how dare God show love to anyone when he didn't have to show love to anyone. How how dare he show love to someone? How dare he show love to only 500 people and not show love to those 300? The, The amazing question, as John said, 
Why would God love God? Why would God show this type of love to anyone? And that's what we should be amazed about. And just as a child does not choose to be adopted, but is chosen by the parents, so Paul is saying that we did not choose to become members of God's family. We don't have that right. An orphan can't go to a parent and say, you're my parents now. Take care of me. Neither do we do that. God has chosen, predestined to adopt us as sons in love. Different praise God for for choosing to do this. And third, Paul tells us how adoption is possible. How can sons of disobedience, how can children of wrath be adopted by a holy and righteous God? Paul says he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. We do not become sons of God without Christ. This is the only way. God would would never adopt an unjustified child. God can have nothing to do with sin. There's no relationship with sin. God takes a person and He makes them righteous. He takes away their guilt through Christ and He makes them righteous by imputing to them the righteousness of Christ. And then He adopts them into His family. Without justification, without Christ, there is no adoption. Without Christ, we remain children of wrath. We remain enemies of God. Thomas Watson said it was no easy thing to make heirs of wrath heirs of the promise. For when God was about to make us sons and heirs, He could not seal the deed but by the blood of His own Son. And it's not that He wasn't able to because He wasn't strong enough. But He is internally consistent. He is consistent with His own standards in in such a way that He would never violate them. He would never allow a goat to get in line with the sheep without first making it a sheep. When when it's all said and done, God is not going to say to some of the goats going to hell, you know what, I have pity on you, just come over here, it's okay. The only way you become a son or daughter of God is through faith in Christ. Galatians 3.26, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. This is the only way. And lastly, Paul tells us the ultimate goal of adoption. He says all of this is to the praise of His glorious grace. This is why He did it. This was the goal. In adoption, the, the glorious grace of God is put on display in a magnificent way. What is grace? Receiving good that we, that we did not earn or deserve. That is grace. God's glorious grace is, is displayed in justification as we receive the righteousness of Christ as an undeserved gift. But again, adoption takes this a further. It's a further display of His grace. Why? Because God could have justified us and left us there. Distant from Himself. 
without any of the benefits of adoption. But he gave us another gift. He not only justified us, but he then adopted us as sons, displaying even more grace, giving us more undeserved gifts. And this is all his doing. Only he gets the glory for this. How is it a display of of His glorious grace as opposed to a display of us making the right decision? Because He predestined us to adoption. We receive no glory in this. The grace, the glory, goes to God's grace alone. As God did this, Paul says, before the foundation of the world. Difference may we sing with a hymn writer. Oh, what a blessing. How can I express it? Out of the fullness of rapture I sing, now by the Father received and adopted. I am a child, an heir of a king. Oh, what a father, how, how tenderly gracious. Oh, what a savior to make me his care though I have care for them as such. This is what He gives to those who turn to Christ, who who repent of their sins, who who turn away from their sins and, and trust in Jesus for salvation. Come to Him in faith. And you would no longer be a child of wrath, but a son and daughter of a gloriously Great and powerful God who who would not only be your king, but your father. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we stand amazed that we can even refer to you as father. We thank you for the glorious grace we have received in adoption. And as we considered today, Father, may the, the benefits, the, the grace, the gifts that have been given to us in adoption cause us to, to glorify You, to, 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 to praise Your name. May our hearts be melted in praise and thanksgiving. May our minds and our tongues be, be filled with praise And Father, may you receive the glory, the honor, and the praise for all that you have done as we see that that, that all of this was done for the display of your glorious grace.